Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Christy Pitts. Christy is the VP of Operations at Mommy, a maternal healthcare company on a mission to make the U.S. the best place in the world to give birth. She co-founded the VCs for Repro initiative, focused on the intersection of the economy and reproductive justice, and hosts the Moms at Work live show to build community, raise awareness, and advocate for better experiences for working moms. She's also an experienced early stage investor, formerly at Backstage Capital, having invested in more than 200 companies led by underrepresented, which means women, people of color, and LGBTQ founders. Christy led company sourcing, diligence, portfolio management, and investor relations for the firm. Additionally, Christy led the launch of the first global accelerator for underrepresented founders. Backstage Capital Accelerators operated in London, LA, Philadelphia, and Detroit. Christy is a high-achieving mom. Say that again, high-achieving mom. And she hosts the live show Moms at Work, where she speaks on a weekly basis with people who are achieving amazing things while raising amazing humans. Christy is motivated by representation and is dedicated to amplifying unheard stories in her work. Previously, Christy had a very multifaceted career at Verizon, which we will get into. She began as a part-time retail customer service representative and worked her way all the way up through the company. From that role, Christy identified a passion for working with early stage companies, which led her to work on the Verizon Ventures team as a principal. Christy is an inventor and has a patent for a connected IoT device, which we have to hear more about later. She has been featured in Fast Company, Forbes, BBC, and TechCrunch. She concepted and launched the Verizon Ventures podcast, appears regularly on Backstage's The Bootstrap VC podcast, and is a co-host of Zero G, a history of forgotten phones with fellow VC and phone aficionado, Peter Rojas. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Christy. Hi. Hey, Christy. Hey. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. You are the podcast queen, I now know. So I'm very honored that you are gracing us with your presence. Miss multiple podcasts all over the place. I'm very impressed. I just, I love to hear the sound of my own voice. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I know. That's what I worry about too. I'm like, do people think I'm doing this podcast because I just love myself? That's definitely not it. No. I like to talk about all the other wonderful people and make friends with everyone. Yes. It's the best. It's the best. Podcasting is the best. Yep. I haven't heard about your Moms at Work podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually. So it was, we did it as a LinkedIn live show. And by we, I mean me, myself and I, with all these amazing moms. The royal we. I use that word all the time too. I'm like, yes, we did all these things. So um, we had it LinkedIn every Thursday. We were streaming live and the episodes are still there. So if you go on LinkedIn, you can search Moms at Work and you'll see the episodes. And then um, just like you mentioned earlier, it's like uh, having having some creative ability to actually produce the episodes and get them up on the podcast places hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. 
I have some people for you if you need, especially need. on the like editing and distribution. Yeah, yeah. Because I like I need at, at this point, all I do is research the guests and then I show up and then everything else after the fact is covered. So yes, let's I need. Because, I need. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So before we get into your story, yeah. we start every show with a fun question, an icebreaker. You can take it as serious or as light as you want. And the icebreaker is what is something new that you've learned in this past week? Yeah, actually, I just learned this yesterday. And I think I kind of knew it, but I learned it for sure, which is in the United States, California is the best state to give birth. The country is one of the worst in the developed world, or actually it could be considered the worst. And But California is the best place within the U.S. to give birth, the safest place. Wow. And why do you think that is? We'll start with like why California is so great, and then we'll obviously get into why the U.S. is terrible. But why do you think California is the best state? Well, okay, so we're doing the best in the country that's the worst performing. So in California, so it's not exactly that we're the best in the world, for example. But the reasons why California is doing better or some of the reasons why are in part through the work of the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative, which is a statewide body that um, does research and reviews um, situations that happen with people who have gone through severe maternal morbidity or mortality, mortality events, um, i.e. people that passed away in childbirth or the first six weeks postpartum or the first year postpartum, and then develops policies and recommendations in order to change that. And there's a lot of work that happens at multiple levels across California, both on the public side and on the private side to make this happen. And I learned this through Mommy, which is where I'm working right now. Um, one of our one of my colleagues at Mommy, her name is Dr. Amanda Williams, and she is our medical director and she sits on the CMQCC. And so she was doing a presentation about maternal mortality and morbidity, and that's where I learned the fact about California. Wow, that's so mm -hmm. wild. Well, glad we're in California. I am sadly moving away from California, but I'm glad we're in a state that prioritizes figuring this out. Why do you think, and I know this is such a loaded question, but why do you think the U.S. is so terrible when it comes to maternal mortality and morbidity? M, M, and M. Yeah, M, M, and M. Hard to say. It's a mouthful. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the short answer is racism. And that I don't say it in that way to be, be glib, but that there's real data which proves out that one of the reasons why our results are so bad is because of systemic racism. And that is in healthcare, but it's also in society as a whole. And so um, that's why on average in the US, black women die in childbirth three to five times more often than white women do. And that persists at different educational levels and income levels. And there are so many, so many things we need to fix as a society in order to change the outcomes. Dr. Williams has another quote, which I love, which is that survival is the floor, not the ceiling. We should not be looking at birth as something to survive, but we should really be looking at, um, we should really be working to make it where people can thrive during birth and in the first year postpartum, pregnancy, birth, and the first year postpartum. I think we forget how dangerous it really is. Mm -hmm. Giving birth is a major, major, major disruption, physically, mentally, everything. And we forget that like you can die from that. I think a lot of people forget that. They think that yeah. Oh, yeah, if you're pregnant, you just have the baby, no problem. But they don't realize that there are complications for the baby and a lot of complications for the mother. I don't know if you saw this. I tweeted this out this week. I was disgusted that 
on the Olympic team, there was like a, I don't know if you might've seen this too. Mm -hmm. There was like- Tori Bowie. Tori Bowie, yeah. But on, she, I think did a relay back in 2016, I want to say, with her, Allison Felix, and two other amazing women. All four are black women. And one of the ones that survived of the four said, three of the four of us have died or almost died while giving birth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you think of these women as like some of the most fit women Mm -hmm. out of anyone. They're athletic, their mindset, their resilience, they're obviously just brilliant, incredible, upstanding citizens of the world because if they're able to make it to the Olympics, that is like upper, upper echelon. That's like Navy SEALs, you know? Like they are mentally and physically brilliant. And three of the four, I mean, that is like disgusting. And then one of them ended up dying this past week. And so it's horrible that it takes those kinds of like catchy headlines to get people to realize. But I don't know if you saw that or if you have any thoughts on it, but that was horrifying. Yeah, it's horrifying. It's devastating. And one death is too many deaths. And the thing about it is that, yes, um, pregnancy, childbirth, and postpartum can all be dangerous, but they don't have to be. And so we can hold two truths at the same time. One truth is that um, we should be more supportive of childbirthing people in the U.S. And that means giving people the right to bodily autonomy and healthcare in every single state. And the other truth is that people should not fear pregnancy and childbirth and becoming a parent if that's what they want to do with their lives. And I didn't experience severe morbidity. Clearly, I'm alive, so I didn't experience mortality, but I did experience complications during pregnancy. And I experienced complications during postpartum. I have two little kids, a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And, you know, that is after giving birth in the safest place in the U.S., as a cisgendered, well, I'll say wealthy, because when you look at income, wealthy, but, you know, there's a spectrum here, right? Uh, Educated white woman that had support and also insurance and so many other privileges that helped to protect me during my experience. Yet I still consider my experience to be traumatic in terms of pregnancy, uh, my childbirth experience, and my postpartum experience. And so we have a lot of work to do while we are the worst place in the world. And while our maternal mortality rates are really terrible, about one in three pregnancies has some form of maternal morbidity. And if you think about this, if you know most people that have kids have more than one kid or they have had more than one pregnancy because pregnancy loss is very common. In fact, it's estimated that one out of three pregnancies are lost outside of abortion care. And so these examples of this are things like the condition that I suffered from, which is called hyperemis gravidarum, which basically just means I threw up all day, every day, and had to have a lot of interventions during pregnancy. But it could be other things as well. For example, tearing during childbirth and so forth. And these are realities and they're parts of healthcare. And the good news is that we can improve, we can change. Mommy does have, where I work now, we are doing that. And our mission is to make the U.S. the best place in the world to give birth. And there's a lot that individuals can do as well to protect themselves. And there's a lot that we can do as a society to improve things. Yeah. And I think it starts with working across all sectors and all industries. So like Mm -hmm. you guys are obviously an amazing technology startup. But like you were talking earlier about that, you know, the California board, there's a lot of government work that needs to be done. There's a lot of folks on the nonprofit level doing great work. Mm -hmm. Is your VCs for Repro, that's a nonprofit? Is that how it's set up? Or is it more of just like a collective? 
It's a coalition and we don't have a formal organizational structure at this point in time. So we're run by a group of volunteers. So my co-founder, Jana Meyerowitz-Turner and I lead the coalition and we'll see where we land. We have looked at doing nonprofit work. We actually looked at becoming a PAC very briefly and then decided against that. I think we'll coalesce around something prior to the election next year, but it's still TBD. Yeah, but see how interesting it is that, and then you have a podcast, which is media, like even just Mm -hmm. in your as one person, you're touching this stuff. It's private sector, it's public sector, it's nonprofit, it's media. Like we all need to be working towards solving these issues and like, you know, doing it as a community because it's just brutal. Yes. Well, I appreciate you sharing more. I can't wait to get into more about mommy. um, And Mm -hmm. I appreciate you sharing that stat with us. I want to take it back to the beginning. Okay. Talk a little bit more about young Christy. Oh boy. Yeah. Like childhood Christy, (laughs) high school Christy, like you know, and then deciding on going to San Jose State, if I have that correct. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. had a million and one things you studied. Give me like the rundown of like, what was that all like? Childhood? What were your passions? What did you want to do when you grew up? Um, where'd you come from? Yeah. Did you see the documentary on Amazon called Shiny Happy People? I didn't. Should I? If you want to, it's about the Duggar family. Um, oh, but it yeah, does... yeah, yeah. I've seen the yeah. trailer for it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So this is very top of mind right now for me because I grew up in kind of an, a, not a fundamentalist environment, but I would say like an evangelical um, Christian environment. And it's, I would say like fundamental adjacent. So okay. meaning that I definitely knew people and had people in my social circles that subscribed to some of the some of the principles that were really spotlighted in that documentary. So I, I wanted to like give that as a framework. If anybody has seen it recently, then you can see some of the things I grew up with or some of the ideas I grew up around. But I did grow up in the Bay Area, in the South Bay, and I spent a lot of time at church growing up. My family was really active in church, and I was also super, super nerdy. So I think the only a claim that I had as a kid was that I won an award for reading the many, the most books in elementary school, like of all the kids in the school. Oh my God, that yes. is nerdy. But I love it's that. so I, nerdy. I had one of those, but I came in second place because the blind kid read more than me because he could be in class oh, reading. Like so he Braille? would beat me. Braille. Yeah, he was yeah. always just sitting in the back reading and no one knew what he was doing. And so he always beat me, but I was number two. But you actually won. I'm very impressed. Well, That's so nerdy of us. It was reading. I know. Yeah. yeah. I'm okay. still a big reader. Still really love the library. Me and too. Uh, let's see. So grew up in California. Um, I had a really kind of cool experience in that I grew up by coastal. So I um, lived here in the Bay Area, but my family was all on the East Coast. And every summer, my mom and I would drive across the country spend the um, summer on the East Coast and then drive back before school started again. And so that was a really great experience for me. Um, We traveled quite a bit and I got to see a lot of the ways different people live in this country, which was really enlightening. I went to San Jose State, as you said. That was actually an interesting experience for me. I graduated from high school in 2003. So I am, I forget how old I am. I think I'm going to be 38 this year. 38, yeah. Yeah, okay, wait, something like that. Yeah, I'm like adding, I'm adding yes. the amount to my yes. age. Yes, because it's 2023, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 2003, yeah. So um, Plus 20, because you graduate high school yes. at 18. Uh, 17, but I turned 18 quickly after. Yeah. Okay. Look at you being so nerdy and young and smart. You no. know, you were just under 18. Everyone else was 18. Okay, the problem with being under 18 when you graduate high school and go to college is that you're not old enough to do things when you go to the dorms and you have to have a permission slip. Oh, that's bad. bad. That's embarrassing. It's Wait, what, what? Are you like an August birthday or a September? September? Yeah. yeah. That's a yeah. little late. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay, but good rough. for you. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, that's fine. So um, <laughs> anyways, I ended up at San Jose State in part because of the dot-com bubble burst. And so this is the this is life in tech in the Bay Area, and I've been living it for a long time. And what ended up happening is my parents had set aside funding for me to go to school, and they had a lot of exposure to tech stocks in like 2000, 2001. And a lot of that money disappeared. So um, in conversation with them, they said, you know, we have still a little bit of money for you to go to school, but it's definitely not enough to cover the schools that you got into or are interested in attending. And so I looked at San Jose State, I could afford it. And that's what I did. And I really what ended up happening, and I was so lucky, and this is why I'm really glad to be on this podcast, is that sometimes things happen in your life that are like luck, and you don't even realize how fortunate you are in the moment. And when you look back on it, you're like, wow, that was really a turning point for me. And what I'm talking about is, so my very first job when I started at San Jose State was at In-N-Out Burger. So any Bay Area or California aficionados, I was at- Yes. Uh, 142 Blossom Hill Road. That was my In-N-Out. And I couldn't afford my cell phone bill. This is back in the day when you paid for text messages one by one. It was rough. That is sounds very rough. Yeah. Yeah. We're all used to like unlimited. Yeah. We're spoiled. Yes. And so I wanted to get a job where I could get a discount on my phone bill. And that was what I did. I got a job at Verizon. And then it turns out I had this incredible timing where I started before 3G was a thing. And then 3G became a thing. 4G became a thing. Mobile became a thing. And the industry just exploded and the opportunity was immense. Verizon also has an, had at the time an incredible tuition reimbursement program. And so they actually funded my undergraduate degree and my master's degree. And so that solved another problem for me, which was that I needed to pay my way through school. And then I just had an incredible, I worked really hard and I had a lot of opportunity to grow within the company. And in my 13 years there, I had a total of 11 different roles. Wow. And you spent 13 years there total. Yeah. Yep. I will say like, so earlier today I was talking to someone and he had been at a firm for six years mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, good for you. You know, six yeah. years. You never hear that these days. One of my old bosses, she was building something for eight years. You know, mm-hmm. I always thought, wow, 13 is like a totally different level. I mean, good I started when I was 19. So I really grew up within the company. Like but as good for I them grew for up, keeping you, but yeah, good for I mean, them. I have like nothing bad to say. I just really worked with really smart people. We were doing really fun things. Um, it was so, I'm just thinking back on, I don't know if you remember this, but like blackberries when they were called crackberries. Mm, crackberry. Cause they were so addicting. Yes. Yes. Okay. This is yeah, like when, maybe. this is like Paris Hilton and Britney Spears in the heyday with yeah, the Motorola razor. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it was a very fun time. We were kind of on the cutting edge, if you will. Yeah. And everything was about mobile, like exactly on the investing side and on the like consumer, like everyone loves it side. Exactly. And so then you transitioned over though, towards the end of your time there to the Verizon Ventures arm, which is kind of interesting. Like Mm -hmm. at what point did you make that switch? And like, why did you, why did you want to do venture and like investing? Yeah. So I, I had the opportunity to work with startups doing some business development work with Verizon. So um, I worked with Lyft. This is before pre-IPO. At the time, I think Lyft was in 60 markets in the US. And we created a discount program for all Lyft drivers. So if you were a Lyft driver and you use Verizon service, you would get a monthly discount. These types of um, programs, which are really... Yeah. yeah. 
they were they were um, really great learning experience that I take into my work today with mommy. Like for example, um, we're doing an implementation with a large insurance company, and on the calls with the insurance company, I'm talking through questions that we addressed, like in similar fashion with the startups that I would work with when I was on the other side of the table. And I really like the bug, the entrepreneurial bug bit me. And the um, culture within startups was so refreshing. Being inside a big corporation, nothing gets done individually. Everything happens as part of a team, which is both a beautiful thing, but it can also feel like a restrictive thing. And in a startup, you can iterate quickly. You can try something out. If it's not working, you change it. So um, yeah, so I, I made it to the Verizon Ventures team. We were deploying about $100 million a year at that time into companies that were strategic to Verizon's goals. And it was a really incredible, I would say culmination of my time there because I brought all of my knowledge from being a frontline employee and was able to think about domains like at the time IoT or drones or software-defined networking, and then see how entrepreneurs were solving problems that could be effective and changing the course of our business, which was a huge ship to turn. Yeah. And I think it's cool that sometimes these like CVCs, corporate venture arms, Mm -hmm. like sometimes they want to invest in things that are aligned with what they're doing as a company. I would say that's most of the time, but sometimes they just like want to have a pulse on the innovation that's going on. And like, it's Mm -hmm. not always directly correlated. So it's cool that you also got to take your knowledge from being at Verizon all those years, really understanding like the goal, you know, the company's priorities, watching it scale and be able to like pick companies that you thought were relevant for, Mm -hmm. you know, the growth of the firm. Like it's a nice way to give back too, you know, like after it has given you so much, you can now be like, okay, these are the few bets that I would take now that I've been, you know, devoted over a decade of my life to this (laughs) company. Yep, exactly. Exactly. I love that. So then Verizon Ventures, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you then switch over to Backstage Capital. Mm -hmm. How did that all go down? And you ended up also being at Backstage, if I have it right, for six years? Yes. Yeah. I'm a loyal girl. What can I say? I (laughs) respect that. I honestly, I was like looking at this and I was like, I I don't think I've ever been somewhere for more than four years. Like I'm also really loyal, but there's a difference between four years and 13 Okay, let me ask you a question though. Yeah. How how do you know when it's the right time to make a change? It's so hard. I'm also like psychotic about needing to grow and like mm-hmm. needing to I think I have a personality too where it's like not easy for me to work for other people because I really am such an entrepreneur. And the only times I have worked for people and been happy have been when they I thought they were like so, 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 so smart and I had a lot mm-hmm. to learn. But no, I think when it's time to go is like it's, it's, I don't know if Oprah said this or who said this, but it's like one of those things where it's like, it starts as a whisper and it's like this quiet thing kind of in the back of your head and it gets louder and louder and louder with time. And if right now it's just a whisper, that's okay. Let it be a whisper. Mm-hmm. And eventually it'll grow over time and it'll become so clear that you have to make a change that it's like overwhelming and you feel really stuck. And so I think that's kind of it. It's like, it gets louder and louder and don't push yourself to make a decision when it's still quiet. You have to wait till it gets louder. And then once it's loud enough, then you move. But it's it's hard to leave places you really love the people. Oh, my God. Yes. Very hard. Can confirm. What do you think? What's your answer? I mean, one of the challenges is – or like one thing that I think when people see my um, career to date is they look at where I've been and they see that I was there for a long time. And so I think the presumption – or a natural assumption that people have is that maybe there I, there wasn't um, challenge and growth. And in reality, like at both Verizon and Backstage, every year I was doing something different and we were growing, like we were scaling 
quickly. I mean, we went, if you look at the mobile timeline when I was at Verizon, it was just insane, right? And similar to Backstage, we invested in 150 companies. Um, we were deploying, we actually averaged this out during, uh, I think at the end of 2021 and realized we had sent a wire on average like every nine days. Wow. Yes. So we were moving so fast that wow. during that time. So I think it's really hard. I think that it's important to be objective and to have people in your life that you can trust. Because one time when I was at Verizon, I was in a job where I was a retail store manager, and that is not a glamorous job. And it's not easy. It's not fun. There are fun aspects to it. There are things that I enjoyed about it. But this was, you know, I could remember um, this was a time when we were short staffed and I would just deal with escalation after escalation with upset customers and work really long days and not have breaks and so forth. And working retail is a, is a grind. And I remember I just wanted to quit so badly, but I was only a couple months away from my 401k vesting. And I had a conversation with one of my mentors, which is my dad. And he was like, if I could tell you, like I could guarantee to you right now that in 90 days, you would no longer be in this position. Could you stick it out? Like as if it was the, the finish line in a race. And I, and I thought to myself, I thought like, if I knew that I could, if I was only 90 days left and there was something that I could work towards, then I could do that because that was like approximately the time frame for my 401k. And it worked out that pretty soon within that 90 day time frame, I was able to change roles and stay with the company. So I think it's really helpful to have these other voices that can help balance you when you're in a reactionary mindset and help you see the big picture. Because ultimately, I was able to borrow against that 401k and buy a house on my own. And so- Hugely helpful, yeah. I think these things are things that you don't realize in the moment. Like I didn't realize 19 when I started at Verizon that there was even tuition assistance available. But now I have no student loan debt. And I was able to buy a house on my own. Like these types of things are things that um, really changed my position from a financial perspective. It gave me the ability to take a risk and join a firm like Backstage, which didn't have a lot of money under management. But so there was opportunity for me to take risks with my salary, for example. Um, and that's because of the choices that I made in those moments. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. I think it's like a combination of having people in your inner circle that you can go to, like a dad, like a mentor. Mm -hmm. But then also like that's why we do this podcast. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. It's like someone might not know you or I. Um, I mean, if they're listening to this, they might know a little bit about me, but they can hear what you're saying and that can be like the sign that they need. Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe I should reframe it. And if I can last 90 days, then I should stay and I should switch my mindset. And I think like that's, that's also powerful is like consuming content that really might not be exactly in your inner orbit, but like helps you think about things differently. I mean, I say that as someone who loves Oprah, I just think I quoted oh my Oprah. Gosh. I don't know, but you know what I mean? Like she, for me is like a mentor, even though we don't know each other. Me too. Okay. So I listen to Oprah almost every day. Do you have her book? What I know for sure. I don't have it. I think it's at my, uh, my childhood home, but I don't have it. Okay. The audible version of that book is essentially like my mentor every day. Like oh. Oprah, Oprah. <laughs> I love it. I need to get that. I should listen yeah, to it. You should um, listen to it. I would highly recommend it. She's the yes. best. Yes, she is. I always joke like my religion is Oprah. Like I'm not, I'm like, you know, culturally Jewish, religiously agnostic, spiritually Oprah. That's my religion. You and I have that in common. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, she's amazing. Okay. So, so you're at Verizon, you're enjoying the investing side of things. How did the backstage opportunity come about? How did that work out? 
Yeah. So this is funny um, because we at Verizon, um, actually the Verizon Ventures team was really progressive in the world of venture at the time. So this was shortly after Verizon had acquired AOL. And at AOL, there was a venture group called BBG. Do you know this? Nisha is still there? Yes. Yeah, of course. Nisha and Susan. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. So they are still independently operating now as BBG Ventures. Wait, so Um, they came from something else? Yes. So (laughs) long story here, and I'll try to keep it short, but long story is that um, for a short period of time, BBG Ventures was under the Verizon Ventures umbrella. Uh huh. My <laughs> mind is blown. Yes. There's so many different things we touched, like Verizon touched while I was there, but this was one of them. So at the time, I think Verizon was really progressive in the sense of respecting and funding women entrepreneurs. And much more so than what I would say was happening in venture at large and was a leader in the corporate venture capital space. And even with that work, I found that we had a big opportunity financially. And that was due to a lack of diversity in our portfolio, in our deal flow, in the rooms that we that we were in. And when you think about the company, we were a huge media organization. We were also a huge technical company. So for example, um, it wouldn't be unusual to be at like IEEE, the an engineering event, and at Mobile World Congress, and then also at a media event. Um, because at the time with AOL, there was um, the Huffington Post and Ariana Huffington was still there. And so there were really a lot of different areas that we touched. It was so wide. Yeah. Yeah. And so I really became an agitator internally around diversifying our approach. And I had a business point of view on it coming from uh, one of the executive roles I had held in the operating business, where our measure of success was customer acquisition and retention for a diverse consumer customer base. And that was something that consumer companies understood well and had been addressing since, since 2000. So for a long time, like at this point we're in 2015, right? And now today, 2023. And so I was just like, you know, why almost like a shout out to Mean Girls, Karen from Mean Girls, when she's like, why are you white? That was kind of what I felt like. I'm like, why is this space so male, so white? Like, so um, homogenous when our goal is to be to create outsized returns. In part, that was our goal at Verizon in addition to strategic return. And when I looked at the landscape, I didn't hear people talking about this except for Arlen. Arlen was in very early days at Backstage. Um, I think that she had invested at that point in less than 10 companies. And so we connected on Twitter. And Arlen is the founder of Backstage for Arlen Hamilton. Yes, thank you. Um, so we connected via Twitter and when we first met, I actually got her, um, pitch deck and I was trying to see if Verizon could be an LP. And I was thinking of it almost a portfolio approach. You know, if BBG could be one aspect of the portfolio, backstage could be another aspect. We could have something like a fund of funds to, um, fund emerging managers, um, diverse managers. And that didn't work out, but I ended up being able to join Arlen. Um, First, I worked with Backstage in a part-time capacity for a year, and I stayed on at Verizon Uh full-time. And then I was able to transition over to Backstage full-time. Once, like, you know, that's what happens with these funds. Like, it takes a Mm -hmm. while to raise it and be able to pay yourself. So sometimes there's these, like, one or two-year gaps where you're kind of, like, still at something, in between something. Yes. Wow, that's so awesome. And so did Verizon end up being an, an LP, also known as an investor? Um, right. in backstage or did that never come through or you don't know? It didn't work out. It didn't mm-hmm. work out, but it was actually a really great thought experiment or yeah. uh, experiment 
to understand. And that was a, a lesson in um, being a GP. Let me tell you, GP being like an investor at a VC firm when you have to raise from LPs who are investors in VC firms, building the business case, seeing what the feedback was internally, et cetera. So crazy. It prepared you well, I imagine, for when you guys did have to actually go raise. <laughs> How was your backstage experience? Like you were obviously there for a long time, you know, head of ops and GP at backstage. Mm-hmm. How did you like it? How did you like being separate from a corporate arm and being able to invest in specifically underrepresented founders? What was that like? Yeah, it was amazing. And I still talk to Arlen and the team of Backstage. Brittany Davis is a GP there. I talk to them regularly. Um, we were just actually discussing a couple of situations that different portfolio companies have been in in the past week on text, like in a text thread. I have on a hat right now from one of our portfolio companies. So very much Backstage Capital for Life over here. And now my job that I have working at Mommy, we were the first institutional investors in the company. And I was on the board through our investment at Backstage in 2021 and 2022. So there, it was an, a very natural transition. So at Backstage, I think that we really drove the conversation forward. We catalyzed the ecosystem around investing in underrepresented founders, and we helped to break down barriers that existed previously. And we did that in a large way that we did that was just by consistently deploying capital. So when we came on the scene, there were um, some programs available for underrepresented founders. And there was really a trend for many years around providing mentorship, but not capital. That has finally started to shift. And now we have seen over the last few years that there is real commitment to this cause. The numbers are not changing in terms of percentage of dollars that have gone to underrepresented founders, especially when you look at it intersectionally, like, for example, when you start to incorporate race and a gender and... It's so bad. Yeah, it's terrible. So I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it and say that we solved the problem because we absolutely did not. However, I do think that um, we made really significant progress and we normalized the conversation or we were a big part of normalizing the conversation. And that actually is part of the reason now why I've worked on VCs for Repro, because last year um, when the Dobbs decision, just before the Dobbs decision came out, there was a leak of, that it was coming, right? Yeah, so I people, remember that. Yeah. So I started talking about abortion rights and it was very similar in the response that I got as to when I would start talking about the lack of diversity in venture in 2014 and 2015. And I'd be sitting in rooms, sometimes with all women, um, really powerful people in venture capital. And I would say, you know, let's talk about abortion. And everybody would look at me like, we don't talk about that. <laughs> and I was, I'm like, yes, we do. It's like, keep the politics out of the boardroom. And you're like, what? And I'm like, this is not politics. If people are forced into parenthood, then they then the opportunity of becoming an entrepreneur is, there is no opportunity to become an entrepreneur. And um, pregnancy... And childbirth and postpartum is dangerous, as we discussed earlier. You should have the choice. And that's part of the goals for reproductive justice. It's the, it's the right to have a child and it's the right not to have a child. And it's the right to raise that child in a healthy and safe environment. And so now that's what I do. I show up to different events in this like a sparkle, some kind of sparkly something. And I'm like, hey, I'm Christy and I'm here to talk about abortion. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But it it really does go hand in hand. And like, you know, and even just hearing you talk about it now, like a lot of women decide and women of color, of course, too, but decide not to start companies because they are forced into parenthood or they decide to become a parents by choice, whatever that looks like. And we're not going to change these stats if 
we force them all to have kids. I mean, then they're going to have a lot of, like you said, a lot of women that are not going to become entrepreneurs because right. they're experiencing their circumstances. And it does go hand in hand. It, it is important that we give women choice and we give women capital. That's been my issue too with some of these programs that, like you said, just support mentorship. It mm-hmm. doesn't change anything. And I don't know what really does get us to change these numbers other than deploying capital from venture funds. I don't know if you guys like were working on other things, but... Oh yeah, we were working on so much. Yeah, it's like, I don't know what more we can do. Like I think of an all raise, for example, Mm -hmm. and I think that they have amazing intentions and I've only good things to say about it, but the numbers aren't changing. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just them, it's everyone, but there's a lot of these organizations that like promote getting more underrepresented founders capital, but why are the numbers not changing? Yeah. So I think we should, we really have to take a long, a long-term approach here. And when, if you look at, for example, um, the overturn of Roe versus Wade, that was a, a success, af- not, I don't consider it to be successful, but for the people that were working to overturn Roe versus Wade, they didn't start working on that. And then five years later, it happened. And this is why I was referencing shiny, happy people um, earlier. If anybody who's listening to this, watch the documentary, part of what they talk about is how evangelical Christianity starts at, like before people are even born to begin grooming them for lives of public service. And you can see people in our pol- that are influential politicians today, influential in media that came out of that evangelical uh, mindset and are driving that forward. So the overturn of Roe versus Wade was something that happened that was 40 years in the making. And similarly, we shouldn't look at, when, when you look at numbers like 2% of venture capital goes to companies that are have solo women CEO founders, it's not going to change in five years or 10 years. We have to examine how money and power flows through the entire ecosystem. We need to recognize the fact that there are a handful of firms that manage billions, and there are many, many firms that manage less than hundreds of millions. And while that matters, as a founder, we have to like, we have to know that we can speak in macro terms. We have to work long term. We have to work in the macro level to affect change across the system. And we also have to get capital in the hands of that one founder who's building, who's hiring a diverse team, who's operating their company with a healthy culture, who goes on and has an exit that generates generational wealth for themselves and their team members. They then go on to seed a diverse ecosystem. And we're starting to see these things flourish across the country. Um, There's progress being made, but we can't look at those grassroots efforts and point at them and say, hey, why... Why hasn't the whole system changed when the power was never in the in those folks that were undercapitalized and at a resource to begin with? The power has and remains in other parts of the ecosystem. That starts with LPs. It starts with how um, venture is incentivized in our financial system. There are so many things that are unexamined. And what we can look at when we say, you know, 2% of founders, female founders get funding, that's a lagging indicator. That decision was made 20 years ago. Yeah. I think people don't realize the life cycle of a fund is actually 10 years. And so a lot of these things we have to plant today to see the returns in 10 years, right? Like you said, that those big windfalls, the people you're seeding today for investment are not going to, well, if they end up being winners, they're not going to see the fruits of that labor until years and years and years from now, like you said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it is a lagging indicator. Um, but it's, you know, it makes me hopeful of the work that you're doing and, you know, at Backstage and now the work you're doing with VCs for Repro and, and all this important work to help, you know, underrepresented folks 
just get the access they deserve. Capital, yeah. healthcare, whatever it is. I think it's awesome. And I'm so glad that, so you've now transitioned out of backstage and you're working at Mommy doing yes. VP of Ops. I just realized saying it, it's spelled M-A-H-M-E, but it sounds like Mommy, like M-O-M-M-Y. I just realized that as I was saying it. Yeah, it's a little bit of a play on words. Um, the idea is like the ah in Mommy, like, uh, like we're here, we help people going through pregnancy, um, childbirth, postpartum to have a better experience. And so, um, I love you it. know, we do provide healthcare, but we don't do medicine. And in other words, we're there for every moment from conception through baby's first birthday. We are bedside with you um, during labor and delivery with doula care, but we're not the OBGYN. We're not the pediatrician. And we show through our results that when you can provide this kind of health care to people, the outcomes are much better. And we start to get away from a conversation where it's only about survival and it starts to become about really empowerment during pregnancy, postpartum delivery. I think it's amazing. And are you, how are you liking being an operator? How's it going? Oh my God. It's so fun. I don't feel like I ever really got away from it because we were always building it backstage, but it's just the best to have a team and to see the, the results we're putting up on the scoreboard. And I'm still very active, as I mentioned, with the backstage portfolio. And I have a handful of angel investments that I made as well and with VCs for repro. So I still feel like I have my feet firmly planted in the venture world. Oh yeah, you definitely do. Yeah. And you've got all of us that are cheering for you, whether you're an operator or a VC, whatever that looks like. Um, we have one final question. We ask all our guests this. What is one piece of advice you would give to every 20-something, whether they're you know, fighting reproductive justice, whether they work in venture, whether they work in business, whether they're at Verizon, whether they're not, whether they're mm -hmm. you know, in medicine or law, like what is that one piece of advice you have for them? Yeah. Okay. Even if you are a retail store manager right now, or you're not a store manager, you're a retail, like you're the greeter at the front door. I was at one point. Um, the one piece of advice that I have found has stays, has been true to me for years and years and years is to get more sleep. Prioritize your sleep. Prioritize your sleep. That's my one piece of advice. Um, go to bed early. If you're a doom scroller, if you wouldn't, okay. Another way to look at this is if you wouldn't set an alarm to do, to get up earlier, to do whatever the thing is that you're doing that's keeping you from going to bed, don't do it at night either. Mm, that's a good one. I figured that that's out. A good line. Yeah. It changed my life. It changed my life. So good. There's a lot of doom scrollers that wouldn't wake up early to scroll TikTok. That's and right. now you've just made them realize that they need to go to bed. <laughs> go to bed. That's my advice. Go get some sleep. And, and sleep keeps you motivated and healthy and sharp for all the things you tackle during the day, mm -hmm. whether they're big or they're small, whether you're at the front you know, retail store manager, or you're trying to change our healthcare system, you know, exactly. Like, it all matters. You need to have sleep. Christy, thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was a blast. This was so fun. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20 Something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.